The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my message for you is The God of Another Chance. Now, it's interesting. When you read John's Gospel, it feels like the story wants to conclude at the end of chapter 20. I say that because John, in that chapter, describes the women's experience there at the empty tomb. And after that, he describes his own encounter at the empty tomb. And and then from there, he tells us about Thomas' experience with the risen Lord there in the upper room with the other disciples. And and after all of that, John concludes things by saying, there were so many other miracles that Jesus performed that time doesn't permit me to go into. But I've handpicked these stories because I want to lead you the reading audience to a point of belief. And it it feels in so many ways like the book wants to end right there. And yet we have one more chapter to go. Why? Because the Lord still had some unfinished business to take care of with one of his disciples, a guy by the name of Peter. You see, the last time Peter saw the Lord was right after he finished denying knowing him for the third time. Luke's gospel tells us that as those words left his lips, I never knew the man that he looked. And Jesus looked from across the courtyard and his eyes met Peter's eyes. And we wonder what was in that look. I mean, a a look communicates so much. And I don't think it was a look of disgust or anger. I think it was a, a look that can conveyed compassion and love. But, but in that moment, they share this look. And, and then the rooster crows and Peter calls to mind the, the thing that Jesus said would happen. And, and here it's just transpired and Peter's heart is broken. So he runs out, the Bible tells us, and he weeps bitterly. And that was Peter's last interaction with Jesus prior to the cross. Now, John 21 happens on the other side of the resurrection. Peter himself has witnessed the empty tomb with his own eyes. He was also there in the upper room. He saw the risen Lord with the rest of the disciples. And yet it's interesting that we don't read of him saying anything in that encounter. That's surprising if you know anything about Peter. I mean, he always seemed to have something to say, right? I can picture him shrinking back into the corner and trying to hide himself. I mean, after his very public failure, I'm sure he was battling thoughts of, what am I even doing here? I don't belong in this room. I'm all washed up. I'm sure Jesus wants nothing to do with me. And in that, I wonder if you can relate. You ever been there in that place where you said, I'll never do that again, fill in the blank. I'll never go back to that. And then you did. And when that happens, it can leave you feeling guilt-stricken, It can leave you feeling like God's maybe done with you. And I think this story in John 21 is here to remind us that failure doesn't have to be final. Can someone say amen? Amen. And that's what Peter's about to learn. As a matter of fact, the Lord had big plans for Peter. But before he can use him, he first has to restore him. You know, if you go back to that Easter morning, the angel meets the women at the empty tomb. And, and if you look at what the angel tells them, he says, go and tell all the disciples and Peter that the Lord has risen. So why would the Lord instruct the angel to single out Peter for this news? 
I suggest it's because the Lord knew that of all the disciples, Peter, more than any of them, needed to be reassured of his love for him. You see, the resurrection happened and it changed everything, but it hadn't yet changed anything for Peter. It hadn't been personalized yet. And that's what's going to happen for him in in chapter 21. And and so too, I believe it's going to happen for many of us. You see, today's message is for anyone who's ever found themselves in need of a second chance. You ever been there? Maybe you've blown it or messed up in some major way. And because of that, you feel like it's over for you. Well, I'm here to tell you that the God we meet in the pages of this book is a God of second chances. Amen. And maybe it's better to say he's not just the God of second chances. He's also the God of third chances and fourth chances. And as many as you need, it would be more accurate to say he's the God of another chance. I'm pretty sure I used up my second chance a long time ago. And so no matter where you find yourself today, no matter how many times you've blown it, I'm here to introduce you to the God of another chance. Let's go ahead and read Peter's story beginning in verse one. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Then it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. Peter said, I'm going out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Go back to verse 1 and notice how it says Jesus appeared again. If you want to fill in the blank in the first point in your outline this morning, it's the Lord comes to us again. How many of you know that sometimes you need Jesus to show up again? By this point... Jesus has already appeared a number of times, and yet we have another story of him showing up. Now, this story occurs sometime between his resurrection and his ascension. And there's a 40-day window of time between Easter Sunday and the ascension of the Lord, which happened 10 days before Pentecost. And during that time, the Lord appeared on several occasions to various groups and individuals. But the emphasis in this story is not merely on the fact that Jesus showed up again. He'd already proven that he had risen from the dead. But rather, the emphasis is on what he was about to reveal concerning himself through this appearance. You see, every time Jesus comes to us again, he does so with a purpose. There's some new dimension of his heart, some new aspect of his character that he is wanting to highlight. And that's certainly the case here. In this instance, he appears again to recommission Peter and to remind him of his calling. You see, Peter, in lieu of his failure, had forgotten who he was and what God had called him to do. So Jesus comes back to remind him. And we know that he'd forgotten because as our story begins, Peter is out on the Sea of Galilee fishing and he had dragged several of the other disciples with him. They've returned out from Jerusalem, which is where um, they were for the Passover and where the resurrection happened. And now they're in the north again. They're in Galilee in response to what the angel had told them. Jesus will meet you in Galilee. But eventually, I guess, Peter perhaps got tired of sitting around and waiting for the Lord. So he says, I'm going to go fishing. And several others jumped into the boat with him. Now, as you may recall, fishing is what a number of the disciples did prior to becoming followers of Jesus. In fact, 
The very first time Peter met the Lord was on this very lake, the Sea of Galilee, perhaps in this very boat. The crowds were thick that day as people were coming to hear Jesus preach, and it was hard to hear Jesus, so he asked to borrow Peter's boat, and he decided to use it as a a makeshift pulpit, and he pushes out from the shore a little bit, and the water provides a natural form of amplification, gets him away from the crowd, and, and he preaches to the crowd, and after ministering to them, I suppose, as a way of saying thank you to Peter, he says, why don't you push out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch? And Peter tells him, oh, we've already fished all night. We've caught nothing. And, and he tries to, you know, get out of it. But he reluctantly agrees to do what Jesus asked. And as soon as he pushes out and lets down his nets, you know what happens. The fish pile in and the nets begin to break under the weight of all the fish. Realizing the holiness of the man in whose presence he finds himself, Peter's response is to say, depart from me. I'm a sinner. To which Jesus responds, don't be afraid, because from now on, you're going to become a fisher of men. And that's how Jesus enlisted Peter as one of his disciples. And and from that moment on, Peter's whole life was changed. He walks away from his fishing nets, and he embarks on this life of a disciple. Now, here we are some three and a half years later. Think of everything that has happened in Peter's life, everything that he's seen, everything that he's encountered. And yet, here we find him back on the boat. It's not hard to figure out why. After messing up so badly, he decides to go back to the only thing he knew prior to following Jesus, which in his case was fishing. In a way, this was Peter's way of kind of going back to his old life, something that the scriptures warn us against. It tells us, you've left this life, so what are you doing going back to it? As Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, let's, let's go ahead and read these words out loud together. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, put off the old ways, the old habits, the old life, and put on the new man. God has done a new work in your life, and yet, How many times, just like Peter, have you found yourself trying to go back to old habits, old patterns, and old friends or old relationships? Yet every time we do that, what do we find? It yields nothing. It doesn't provide us with the joy we thought it would. I think it's telling when John says that night they caught nothing. I think he's telling us more than than the fact that they came up empty in their fishing nets. For him, it was a way of communicating the old life held nothing for them anymore. And that's true for every one of us. Every time we try to go back to those old things, it leaves you feeling empty and dry. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about today. There's no more miserable person on the planet than the Christian who's still trying to find life in dead places. And so Peter and the other disciples come up empty. Now, verse 4, we carry on in our story. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was him. So he calls out to them and says, friends, you guys caught anything? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. 
And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Perhaps they didn't recognize Jesus because it was still early, it's dawn and the light is dim. Or maybe they were too far from shore to make him out and so all they see is the faint silhouette of a man and and they can't make out who it is yet but they hear his voice and he asks the one question that every fisherman dreads answering on a night when he's just caught nothing. How'd it go, fellas? Now obviously Jesus knew full well that they hadn't caught anything. So what's he doing here? I believe he's trying to get them to think about their answer. He's saying, hey guys, I see you've gone back to fishing. How, how's that going for you? Did you, were, did you find what you were looking for out there in your old life, so to speak? After admitting they'd caught nothing, Jesus then offers some friendly advice. Hey, have you tried the other side of the boat? Now, of course, his advice is laughable, right? I mean, boats at that time are only about seven and a half feet wide. And to think that it would make any difference to pick up your nets, which is a lot of work that goes into that, and then to drop them on this side of the boat, it's ludicrous. I mean, Jesus isn't a professional fisherman. These guys were. They'd spent their entire lives on this lake. They knew the best time for fishing was at night. What they would do is they would light torches and hold them out over the water to attract the fish which would come to the surface to catch the bugs on the surface of the water and then they would find themselves entangled in the net. But now it's morning and, and here's this guy tell him, telling them they're fishing on the wrong side of the boat. Yet there's also something eerily familiar about the, old scene, the whole scene and it reminds them of Jesus. And so they decide to do what he says. And the moment they do, you know how the story plays out. It's like every fish in the Sea of Galilee was waiting for them on the right side of the boat. And the moment they drop the nets, they just jump right in. And they get this huge catch of fish. Now, I don't think I've ever seen this story through this lens before, but I, I want to make an application for you guys. I think Jesus is offering his disciples some business advice here. I mean, think about what this meant for these guys and their families. This huge haul of fish, it would have provided them with a windfall of cash. And so for us, I think there's an application to be made. Whenever Jesus offers you business advice, take it. No matter how silly it might seem, amen. You know, some of you guys are business owners or business leaders. And I wonder, have you ever thought about inviting Jesus into the boardroom with you? giving him a seat at the table, and giving him the opportunity to speak into your company's strategy. I was reading about Chick-fil-A, you know, and, and we all know that it's a Christian-owned company, and they are famously closed on Sundays. And why is it that I only crave Chick-fil-A on Sunday afternoons? <laughs> Be that as it may. They have decided to close on Sundays. And as a business decision, it seems silly I mean, you're going to lose a whole day's worth of revenue. And yet, did you know that Chick-fil-A's are, well, you probably did know, they're wildly successful. And on a per restaurant basis, they are more successful than any other fast food chain. 
The average Chick-fil-A restaurant earns twice as much money as the average McDonald's, in spite of the fact that they're only operating on six days instead of seven. I guess it all just goes to show when you honor God with your business, when you honor what he asks you to do, he tends to take care of you. And you can apply this on a personal level too. You don't have to be a business owner to take Jesus' advice when it comes to finances. He says, I want you to tithe out of your resources and the first fruits, the 10% off the top of what I give you. And you say, but wait a minute, that's less for me. And he says, it's weird math, but just trust me. I know what I'm doing. And when you honor him, he has a way of blessing you and taking care of you. And these guys are learning that as they obey the Lord. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. At this point, they realize who it is that's standing on the shore. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wraps on his outer garment around him for he had taken it off. So he puts on his coat to jump into the water and swim. Doesn't make a lot of sense. He's not thinking straight. And he jumped into the water. Now, the other disciple followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. I love the fact that as soon as Peter hears John say, it's the Lord, he just puts on his coat, jumps right in the water and starts swimming for Jesus. To me, that shows real growth on his part as it pertains to his understanding of grace. You see, Peter had learned about, a lot about Jesus over the previous three and a half years. The first time he saw Jesus perform a miracle and he realized he was in the presence of a holy man, he said, depart from me, I'm a sinner. But now after three and a half years with the Lord, he's drawn to him. He instinctively knew that Jesus wouldn't reject him, even though he'd blown it. And I think that's always what growing in grace produces in a life. Shame makes you want to run and hide from the Lord. It makes you want to close this book and keep your distance from the Lord. That's the tool of the enemy. When you've blown it, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction, which draws you to the feet of Jesus. It is the work of God's redeeming grace in your life and evidence that you are maturing in your faith. Now notice too, when they get to the shore, Jesus already has what they were looking for. They went out fishing, caught nothing, Jesus has what they wanted all along. It's already breakfast is waiting for them. Now in verse 10, Jesus says, bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and he dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said, come on, have some breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and the same with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let me bring you now to the second point in our outline. If you want to fill this in, the Lord invites us to co-labor with him. He comes to us again in our failures and then he reinstates us. He invites us to co-labor with him. Notice how Jesus invites the disciples to add some of the fish they had just caught to the breakfast he was already preparing. In my opinion, this is a wonderful way for him to illustrate how he chooses to work in this world. You see, God doesn't need us. How many of you know that? He doesn't need us to accomplish his mission or fulfill his purpose and his plan here on earth. And yet, although he doesn't need us, 
He delights in partnering with us. He chooses not to act independently from us, but rather he participates with us and co-labors with us in the fields that he has already sown and prepared for the harvest. And so we get the joy of walking with him into the harvest. I mean, just think of that story of the multiplication of the fishes and the loaves. It starts with the lunch of a small child. He brings his loaves and fishes, and this is what we do. Jesus, here's what I've got to offer. It's not much. And the Lord takes whatever we give him, he blesses it, and he multiplies it. Now, of course, the greatest work that we have been invited into to participate with the Lord in is this work of the great harvest, the great commission as we know it. And I think the nets that that were full of fish picture that harvest. Jesus was was giving them a, a preview of what they were about to experience as they then went into the world, to the uttermost parts of the earth, to make disciples of all nations. And I I do see a picture in that in these fish. And by the way, isn't it interesting how John specifies the exact number of fish? There were 153. One, two. He took the time to count them. And since God never wastes words, uh, it seems significant. Now, I read a number of opinions and theories about what the number represented. One interesting one I want to share with you is comes from the pen of a guy named Jerome. And he was an early church father. And in his writings, he said that at that time, there were 153 known species of fish in the world. I mean, clearly there are many more, but that's how many they knew of at that time. Now, if that's true, I have no way of verifying that. But if that's true, then it's it's a wonderful picture of, again, the Great Commission and how Jesus was telling these guys, you're going to go to every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue, and I'm bringing in the nets. And even though the net was so full, notice how it doesn't break. Not one fish that gets into the net slips through the cracks. Praise the Lord for that. And, and that's something that Peter needed to know in particular. He probably felt like he was the one who had slipped through the cracks, but the Lord wasn't done with Peter. And, and that's what this whole breakfast was about. Read on with me in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Then Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, basically, everything that we've read and everything that's happened in this morning up to this point has has been leading to this climactic moment and conversation between Jesus and Peter. And I think it's obvious to us that Jesus is wanting to recreate the scene of Peter's greatest failure. It had been over a fire, the fire of the enemy that Peter was warming himself at, that he had denied knowing the Lord. And so... In some ways, it's fitting that Jesus would hear over a fire, ask him three times if he loves him. In a way, Jesus was bringing Peter back to the scene of the crime. Now, when he asked him, do you love me more than these? I wonder what he was referencing. Was he perhaps pointing to the other disciples who were sitting there finishing their breakfast? Peter, do you love me more than these guys? Remember, 
Peter had famously bragged on the night where he would ultimately betray the Lord. Hey, Lord, all these other guys, they might deny you, but not me. I'm your guy. Famous last words, right? (laughs) Be careful when you think you're standing because that's when you're most in danger of falling. He bragged about his loyalty and his fidelity, but it ended up failing him. So was Jesus pointing to the disciples or perhaps was he pointing to the fish? Peter, you've gone back to your old life. Do you do you love me more than you love these, these fish or these boats or these nets that you walked away from? Or perhaps it was everything that he was referencing. In any event, Peter was quick to respond, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And yet, even in that, there's a revelation. You see, the word that Jesus uses for love and the word that Peter uses for love are two different Greek words. <clears throat> so when Jesus asks, do you love me? He uses the Greek word agape. Now, agape speaks of self-giving, sacrificial, unconditional love. It's the love that God has for us. So he says, Peter, do you love me in that way? And when Peter responds, he says, you know that I love you. But he uses the Greek word phileo. We're familiar with that word from our city, Philadelphia. It's known as the city of brotherly love. And so phileo speaks of a lesser degree of love. It's still beautiful, but it's, it's more like brotherly affection. So in a sense, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me with all your heart? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I really, really, really like you a lot. The third time Jesus asks Peter, he, he comes down to his level and he says, Peter, do you even phileo me? Do you love me that much? And at this, Peter's heart was grieved. He, he sees what's happening. But he's come to the end of himself. There's no more bragging, no more talking about how great his love is for God or his fidelity. This is where the Lord has been trying to get Peter all along. And by the way, it's where the Lord wants to get us. He's trying to bring us to the end of ourselves. Because when we come to the end of ourselves and realize that we have nothing to bring to the table and nothing to offer God in terms of, hey, you're getting a pretty good deal with me. But instead, we throw ourselves completely at his feet, relying wholly on his grace. That is when God can begin to use you. On the whole, I've found that it is much safer as a Christian to emphasize God's love for me than it is to emphasize my love for him. You see, my love is frail. My love is weak. My love is feeble. His love, on the other hand, is enduring and perfect My love falters. His love never fails. And the more you learn to ground yourself in the love of God for you, letting go of who you are and anything that you have to offer, you just rely on the Lord, the more usable you become to the Lord. And that's what Peter's learning. You see, Jesus didn't bring Peter to this fire to to rub his nose in his past failures. No, he brought him to this fire to rekindle his passion and reignite the flame in his heart. He didn't bring him here to to just kind of push him down, but to redeem the fire. You see, from this day forward, every time Peter found himself at another fire, instead of conjuring up images in his mind of his own failure, from this point forward, it would stimulate memories of the time when Jesus restored him back to faith. See, Jesus didn't bring Peter to the fire to cut him from the team. No, he brought him here to recommission him into service. The, Peter want, the Lord wanted Peter to know something, and I believe he wants someone in here to know it as well. 
failure doesn't disqualify you from future use. You know what failure does? It qualifies you as human. (laughs) We've all failed the Lord, and so we can all resonate with Peter, which is why this is so beautiful that the Lord reinstates him here. When he tells him, good, if you love me, then feed my sheep. That was Jesus' way of installing Peter as a leader in the church. He was identifying him as a shepherd. Now you're qualified to lead. Instead of disqualifying you through your failure, your reliance on my grace, your understanding of my heart, it qualifies you to lead more effectively. Don't you love that? So he installs him as a shepherd. Now we understand that Jesus is the chief shepherd. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And so he's the chief shepherd of our souls. And yet, he has anointed and appointed individuals to serve as shepherds of his flock. That's all of us. I'm both a sheep and a shepherd, right? I serve the chief shepherd, but for this flock, God has appointed me as the shepherd of this flock. And so when God says to Peter, I want you to feed my sheep, the way that sheep get fed is through this book right here. He's saying, teach my people about my heart. This book is spiritual nourishment. And by virtue of the fact that you're here, you're being fed the word and it is satisfying your soul, but it is also strengthening you for the fight. And the more you consume this book, the healthier your soul is going to be, which is why we place such a premium on Bible study around here. Every time we gather, we open our Bibles And that's one of my chief responsibilities as a shepherd. And the Lord points out two here in the text. The first one he says is, shepherds ought to feed sheep. And if you want to use a criteria by which you can judge whether or not the church you're attending is a place that is right for you and healthy for you and a good fit for your family, just start there. Do they teach the word of God? Because all healthy sheep are fed nutritious meals. And and my job is to make sure that you guys are well-fed sheep. Jeremiah the prophet said it like this. This is Jeremiah 15, 16. Let's read this together out loud. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. So a healthy diet of the word will produce fruit in your life and health for your soul. We eat, we consume the word of God. Now, the other responsibility of a shepherd that Jesus points to, he says, good, if you love me, then take care of my sheep. Now, this refers to all the other pastoral aspects of the ministry outside of teaching, right? I mean, there's, there's, this is an important part of my job, but it's not by no means the only thing that we do around here. And, and since there's a lot of sheep in this flock, we have a lot of shepherds, a lot of pastors on staff. We have 18 pastors that help oversee all the various aspects of the ministry, and there's stuff going on all throughout the week. And, and, and the, the job of a shepherd is, is, you know, 24-7, and there's defending against wolves. That's one of my jobs. Make sure you're fed. And, and I think just making sure that I have my thumb and we have our thumbs on the pulse of the flock. How is everyone doing? What are the needs of the body being led by the Spirit? Years ago, I, I read this book that I think kind of captures the heart of what it means to be a shepherd, And the title of the book was, They Smell Like Sheep. And I think all true shepherds will smell like sheep. It just means you're 
part of the body and you're ministering to the needs. And so the Lord installs Peter as a shepherd. He says, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. And I love how his restoration is immediate. Did you catch that? Jesus doesn't put him in time out. He doesn't stick him on a shelf like what we might expect. He doesn't sit him on the bench, but he immediately puts him back into the game. Now, as I was preparing this message, I, I came across this, this really great story, true story, about a football game that happened. It was at one of the bowl games, uh, and this happened a, a while ago. And in the course of the game, one of the teams fumbled the ball, and a player from the opposing team picked it up, which is good for his team. But then what happened next wasn't so good. He proceeded to run 65 yards in the wrong direction. And he was running towards his own team's touchdown. And his own player had to tackle him at the two-yard line just before he scored for the other team. Pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, it's a bowl game, right? And this happened just before halftime. And, and so after halftime, as the second half begins, everyone is expecting that the coach will sit this player on the bench and that he'll be riding the pine for the rest of the game. And yet to everyone's surprise, including the player, he gets sent right back out onto the field. And, and afterwards, the coach is asked, why did you send him back onto the field after he made such a boneheaded play? And he said, I needed to teach a lesson that one play doesn't decide a game. And that's good coaching, but not just for football players. I think that's good news for all of us. The Lord sent me here to tell somebody that one sin doesn't define a life. Your past doesn't get to determine your future. The game's not over. In fact, there's a whole nother half to play. And the game is ultimately going to be won or lost in the second half. You know, Moses thought he was done at 40 years of age when he murdered the Egyptian and then was driven into the wilderness. He spends the next 40 years wandering around like a shepherd. And then God shows up at the age of 80 and says, finally, you're ready to be used. And he employs him into full-time use. And you're never too late. You've never done too many things that will keep God from being able to use you. If you confess your sins, if you allow him to wash you, he removes your stain of sin from your life. Psalm 103 verses 10 and 11 says it like this. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as far as, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, for as, my, my notes are bad. <laughs> for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Praise the Lord. In spite of the fact that Peter had messed up so badly, there was a whole nother half to his story. The gospels only tell the first half. And don't you know, he had a wonderful second half to his life story. We can read about it in the book of Acts. And there on the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit is poured out on 120 believers who are gathered together in prayer, in fasting, in supplication. And then it's Peter that the Lord taps on the shoulder and he stands up and he preaches a bold message filled with the grace of God. And on that day, 
3,000 respond and they say, what should we do? And he tells them to believe on the Lord Jesus and be baptized so that times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. And that is exactly something that he knew about firsthand. He had experienced those times of refreshing and he was just getting started. You can read about the rest of his story in the book of Acts. But his whole story is a wonderful reminder of the fact that it's not how you start, but how you finish that truly matters. And you are assured of a strong finish, just like Peter was. Let's go ahead and finish reading in verse 18 through 22. The Lord says to Peter, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Now, Jesus said this, John tells us, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one on, who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw me, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Final point in your outline this morning, the Lord will complete what he started. When Jesus tells Peter that as an old man, his hands are going to be stretched out, he's essentially telling him, this is how you're going to die. And he was previewing how Peter will ultimately be crucified. And indeed, church history records for us how Peter, because of his faith, was brought to a cross. And they said, recant or we're going to crucify you just like we did your Lord. But he refuses. No more denying. Not from Peter's lips. Never again. And in fact, he makes this request. He says, I'm not worthy to be killed in the same manner as my Lord. Will you do me this honor and allow me to be crucified upside down? And so Peter is crucified upside down. But the greater question is, why would Jesus bring that up here? Seems like a non sequitur. Peter, you know, I'm reinstating you. And by the way, here's how you're going to die. Thanks, Lord. Why would the Lord tell him that? I'll tell you. Because the Lord wanted Peter to know that he was going to make it to the finish line. I'm sure Peter had his doubts. Lord, am I going to get to the finish line? I thought I loved you before, but we saw where that led me. And, and so he harbored these fears. And the Lord says, don't worry, Peter. You're going to get to the finish line. And that same promise might be spoken over every child of God. Paul says it like this in his letter to the Philippians. Let's read this verse together out loud. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. We can be confident of this very thing. The same God who started a work. There's a work that has begun in your life. And it's God's work. That's the first point you need to make note of. It's, it's a God work, and he's doing it in you. It's not your work for him, but it's his work in you. It's God's work. It's also an ongoing work. I've often said, I feel like as Christians, we should walk around with hard hats and, and signs around our chest that say, construction in progress. Because we are indeed a work in progress. Amen? Amen. And so we're not finished yet. We're in process, and the Lord is, is going about tearing apart the old habits, old nature, in order that he might replace it with his spirit and his heart. And, and the other good news is that not only is it a God work, not only is it an ongoing work, but it is a work that has a completion date, and you will reach the finish line. And on your way to that finish line, when you see Jesus and you're 
fully and finally conformed into his image and the very presence of sin is removed from your life. On that day, he's going to say, well done, enter into the joy of your reward. And your only job between now and then is to do what Jesus says to do to Peter. He says, follow me, follow me. It's kind of like the bookends of Peter's whole experience of a disciple. It's bookended by this phrase. At the very beginning, Jesus says to Peter, come and follow me. And at the end, the last thing Jesus says to Peter is, you follow me. Now, we get tripped up just like he did when we get our eyes on other people's race. And we step out of our lane. And Peter's looking at John. And he says, well, what about him? And what's your plan for him if that's my story? And the Lord says, you don't worry about him. You don't worry about her. You don't look at that ministry. You're not comparing yourself with that person or that mom or that business. Your job from start to finish hasn't changed. The Lord hasn't moved the goalpost. The the goal is the same. Every day of the Christian life, we wake up and the goal is, I'm following Jesus. When he says, go left, we turn left. When he says, go right, we turn right. When he says, speak, we speak. When he says, jump, we say, how high? Where he leads, we follow. That is the whole Christian life. There's not a lot to it, and I love it for its simplicity. Amen. The devil has been working overtime on some of you, trying to get you to believe that the Lord is done with you. But the Lord reminds us through this story that he's the God of another chance. And I just want to drive that point home. If I can just, if I can wake up one person You've been sitting on the sidelines. You've removed yourself from fellowship. You're maybe here. Maybe you're watching online or perhaps even tuning in on the radio, wherever you're taking in this content. But you're, 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 you're in the shadows, just like Peter was in the upper room. He, he was in the shadows. He didn't want to step forward. He didn't want to speak out because, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but it, and it's changed everything, but it hasn't changed anything for you yet because you haven't realized the power of the cross to forgive every sin, the power to defeat every uh, trial and, and the power of Jesus to set you free from the shackles of shame and the bondage of your past. And so the Lord is coming to you again. He's coming to you through this message, and he wants to remind you that the good work he began in you, he is going to complete. All you have to do is keep following him. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.